Instantly recognisable overture from Rossini's opera William Tell. That particular version was recorded for World Opera Day by Irish National Opera and the Office of Public Works in association with Sing Ireland. And now for the first time in 145 years, Irish National Opera bring William Tell back to Irish shores for a series of performances at the Gaiety Theatre this month. The opera is based on the legend William Tell telling the story of a freedom fighter in Austrian-occupied Switzerland under the Habsburg government. And it gives us the famous scene where the titled character, under the threat of execution, shoots an apple from his son's head with a crossbow. William Tell is described as Rossini's most ambitious and vocally challenging opera. But who better to meet those challenges than one of Ireland's leading sopranos, Rachel Croche, and the Canadian baritone, Brett Pulligato, both of whom join me now. Is it a big challenge? Yes. <laughs> yeah. I don't know about, I don't know how you feel about it, Brett, but this is kind of like the Olympics of bel canto music. Do you find? It's pretty impressive. It's it's yeah. quite a lengthy piece. And my character is on stage for all four acts. I, I rarely leave the stage. So it's, it's, yeah, it's quite monumental. Now, we heard the overture there and then the wonderful singing of, of the choir. Like It is such an iconic piece, isn't it? It just makes you want to jump into action. It's fantastic. I don't know another piece like it that has so much chorus on stage mm-hmm. all the time. I was saying to colleagues that um, for me, apart from the duet and the trio that I sing, all of my um, moments on stage are with the chorus. Even my aria is with the full chorus on stage. So, yes, you will, you will definitely not fall asleep in this show. So you said you were going to tell us what the plot is. I'm going yeah, to Yeah, I know it's you. a bit of Austro-Hungarian, you know, history, but do your best. Well, it's, it's two legends. It's the legend of William Tell, freedom fighter, but it's also the legend of the three cantons who united to uh, oppose Austrian rule. Um, um, Rossini chooses, because it was written in the mid-1820s, he chooses to, to have most of the battles take place off stage because he was writing for a Parisian audience who had just been through the French Revolution and he certainly didn't want to stir up any more unrest. So it's really a show about unity, about harmony, about uh, community. Um, but yes, William Tell is trying to amass the forces to um, oppose Gessler, who is the leader of the um, of the Austrian forces, his sister Mathilde, whom Arnold, our tenor, helped rescue from an her, avalanche. From an As avalanche in opera <laughs> years ago. So, so the tenor is torn between his newfound love for Mathilde and mm. um, fighting on the side of the Swiss. But William finally convinces him that we will never be independent unless we all join together, and that's what we do. We eventually joined together to overthrow Gessler, but not before um, I'm put in an awkward situation with my son having to shoot an apple off of his head in order to survive. Hold that thought. We'll be back about the apple. But first of all, Rachel, yes. you, you're also in a difficult position because you play Mathilde <laughs> and you yeah. are sister of the, the bad Madden, guy, the, the Austrian. Madden. Absolutely. So uh, Mathilde is the princess of the Habsburg Empire and... She's not, she doesn't feel at home in that position. You know, we first meet Mathilde, she's kind of in a state where she's thinking about Arnold, the man that she loves, who is from the other side of the tracks. They kind of have a bit of a, a Romeo and Juliet situation. And she's, she wants to be with him, he wants to be with her, but they know it cannot be because of where they're from, their social status. She's a princess, he's a villager. Um, and also when we first find her, she's in nature and that's where she finds her solitude and her happiness until Arnold comes along. Um, but it's such a beautiful, 
beautiful role it really is and like just what you're saying there about the music before and the energy of those choruses I don't know about you Brett but before I was involved in this project I didn't know this opera so well like as you said 164 years was it since we heard in Ireland this opera has everything in it what do you think Brett? It's pretty it kind, impressive. It yeah. has like these huge amazing uprising choruses has all these funny gorgeous dancing moments and we have these amazing dancers involved on stage and the chorus are doing their bit as well um, and it has these really poignant beautiful intimate moments like when we first see Mathilde with Arnold's Now, uh, Brett, going back to you and what you have to do to your son, this is why does he have to shoot the the apple from his son's head? William Tell. So in Rossini's opera, uh, William and Jamie uh, happen upon a moment where Gessler is forcing all of the villagers to bow uh, before him. Um, uh, He Gessler requests that William and Jamie also play pay homage to him and they refuse so uh, this scene ensues where he said uh, he says to William Tell as punishment for your defiance of me I hear that you are this tremendous archer Um, if you can shoot the apple off of your son's head then you can both go free so that's and and William Tell acknowledges that it's his um, pride that causes this event to occur and you, Brett, playing William Tell, do you have to do that? Well, you'll have to come to the opera and find out. I will say... I, I saw you practising on YouTube. Yes, I know. You know. Well, you know, I just wanted to be ready for, for any... A a, a, exactly. Yeah, it was scary. Yeah. But, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a tremendously dramatic piece. It's amazing that it's 200 years old, but every scene, like this, especially that scene, it's just so gripping. It's like TV. Cool. Now, you're a baritone and we have Gabriel uh, Becquerre, is that the right pronunciation? And he is going to sing this Soie Immobile. Could you introduce us? This this is the, the aria that happens in this scene. It's a stunning aria in the midst of all of this big chorus stuff and, and running around um, just before the, the moment happens. There's this incredibly intimate moment between Tell and his son where he says, stay still. I know the arrow may... Uh, frighten you but don't move your mother expects both of us to return home oh Wonderful piece, wonderful piece. Rachel, you have um, grown up with the INO, really, haven't you? You are, and now this is your first starring role. Yeah, I mean, yeah, Irish National Opera is very much like my family opera. Um, I was a member of the inaugural studio programme. So back in 2018, when the company was established, myself and actually two of the other cast members, Amy Niarig and Andrew Gavin. Also, we were all part of the same studio. Um, and that was basically involved. It was a year of masterclasses, small roles with the company and basically mentoring. And since then, I mean, all three of us have been very fortunate that, you know, 
with Fergus Shield and the whole company have kind of taken us under their wing and they've invested in us and since they've established the company every year they've kind of given us small roles and each time something a little bit bigger a little bit better and for me personally this is a bit of a, a milestone in my career with the company in that yes my first like leading the leading lady role in it um, and is Matilda so, yeah. scary one to have yes. let's say what you have said <laughs> well, why didn't you give me an easier one to start what? well yeah I mean we'll take what we're given but um, no it's stunning and it's a big challenge but you know Fergus is conducting and he know I trust him so much and I feel grateful that he's trusted me with this beautiful role um, it's very challenging vocally it has these really long beautiful legato lines and then this crazy coloratura um, dramatically it's quite different to anything I've done before but that's why we do it you know to kind of you know push the boundaries of what we think we're capable of um, and I'm really loving it and also the three main roles in this so Brett's character Guillaume Mind Me Tilled and the Arnold as well we're all double cast because we have so many shows so I'm actually sharing this role with another amazing Irish soprano Moira Flavin um, so it's been a really amazing process just seeing what she does with the role and what I can steal which <laughs> I love that she does um, but yeah it's been a really gorgeous process so it's nice to kind of share that experience with somebody else also but yeah it's a big a big moment for me and I'm very grateful and I'm very excited Yes and it's great to see that you know that's the yeah. INO are bringing people through Oh, very is, much yeah, so. Yeah. They're so great at investing and nurturing and giving people this amazing platform. So I I'm, I'm feel very lucky. They, uh, it said about this opera, because it was Rossini's last opera, Brett, that he, he, he put so much into it. it there is so much art complexity that really he had almost exhausted his his powers to, to write opera. Do, do you see that or do you buy that? I do. And, you know, I think we forget because since uh, Rossini in the, 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 the ensuing 200 years, we've had Donizetti and we've had Bellini and we've had Early Verdi. So it's easy to look at this piece and just say, oh, like the RU you just played. Oh, well, yes, Bellini writes that. But they weren't writing at the time. So there's such a forward thinking piece. He really did lay the groundwork for so much of the music that came after. And also in terms of the, 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 the ethos of this piece, that one of the things I love about this production is that we've stripped away all of the, the, the setting it in a particular place. So we're not, we don't see... Swiss chalets and things like that because it's really a piece as I said earlier about community and whether it's after the French Revolution whether it's after the Easter uprising whether it's after COVID you know as humans we we gravitate towards community family unity and and I think Rossini realized that that these themes are universal and that they will never go away so and I'm, I'm also very excited because so often we do operas like Marriage of Figaro everyone knows and I always think what must these pieces have been like when people didn't know them the first time and we kind of have that chance now people will not have seen this yes so they will come to the to the opera and they will we get the chance to just challenge them and excite them without knowing what's coming and i love that part of this well, my thanks to baritone uh, Brett Poligato and Irish soprano Rachel Croish for coming in tonight. Brett will perform the title role in the Irish National Opera's production of William Tell for next Tuesday, November the 8th. Irish resident Hungarian baritone Gaula Nag- Nagy will perform the role on Saturday, November the 12th. Rachel will take the lead role of Matilde, alternating, as she said, with soprano Mari Flavin. And as I said, this is the first time the opera has been performed in Ireland in 145 years. Opening night is next Tuesday, November the 8th and the opera runs until Sunday, November the 13th. There is also a special free online introduction to opera and William Tell on November the 3rd. You can find full details at irishnationalopera.ie You're listening to Tuesday Night's Arena. It was next to impossible this week to scan any kind of media without coming across a pithy quote or an anecdote from Bono. That's because after a life of being written about, lead singer of U2 and activist Bono has decided to write a book about himself and his life. Surrender, 40 songs, one story takes us from his early days growing up in Dublin, including the loss of his mother Iris when he was 14, to U2's seemingly unlikely journey to becoming one of the world's most influential rock bands. 
surrenders subtitle 40 songs one story is a nod to the book's 40 chapters which we which each are named after a U2 song I'm joined now by Ortiz Arts and Media Correspondent Sinead Crowley who has read Surrender and recently spoke to Bono about the memoir which you probably heard on Morning Island and I think you can get a longer version on RTE Culture. Sinead, it opens very dramatically uh, with uh, Bono, Bono getting open heart surgery uh, on his eccentric heart, as he calls it. Um, that was something that was only hinted at before that he had that surgery. It's a very dramatic opening. Uh, why do you think he opened the book with that? Well, I think two reasons. First of all, as you say, he had hinted about it before in song and written down as well that there had been an arresting experience or, you know, that there had been a serious physical problem for him. But he has opened and said that, yes, he had what he calls an eccentric heart. He had serious eight hour heart, open heart surgery and that, you know, basically he came close to death and he had emergency surgery. But really, I think he opens the book with that for two reasons. One, to tell the story. But secondly, then, because he's going to open his heart in another way, because essentially this book is a very in-depth and very personal autobiography. There's no holds barred. Any question you might have you know, wanted to ask Bono doesn't have to be asked again because it's all in there actually. He just tells the entire story of his life, the life of the band, his family and, and their career as musicians as well. So it's all in there. So I think opening with the open heart was a very deliberate decision. Yes, and there's lots of name dropping and great stories, but Dublin is such a, a strong presence through all of the book. We st- he goes back and he starts talking about his childhood, which was relatively comfortable at the beginning. But then that all changed when his mother, Iris, who died when he was only 14. And again, even the events of his mother's death are truly traumatic, aren't they? It, it, the event happening at or beginning to happen at his grandfather's grave. That's right. I mean, the the beginning of the story is very much rooted in North Dublin, in Cedarwood Road, Glasnevin North or Finglas East. You can have many people will argue over the particular location, but we all know where it is. And yes, you know, there was himself and his brother and his mother and father and they grew up, they had friends on the road. Everything was going reasonably okay until she died when he was 14. She collapsed at her own father's funeral. And then Bono and his cousins were back at the house, at the grandfather's funeral, at the grandfather's house in Stonybatter while she was rushed to hospital and a very unfortunate incident there where he actually overhears how sick she is and others don't know that he's actually in the house. So it's it's very difficult for him. Um, she dies then a couple of days later and he's left in the house with his father and his older brother and really that is painted in the book as, as the most significant you know thing to happen to his early life because you had three men living in the house as he says they were screaming at each other rather than talking to each other and really it changed his life. But on the other hand he then went to school and met the three who were to become his bandmates and also the woman Alison Stewart who was to become his wife so even though there was this terrible loss at the age of 14 which he has sung about on many occasions and continues to sing about songs like Iris which were published very recently at the same time then he then went on to meet essentially his second family both the family that was to be you know the woman who was to become his wife and then the family that was to become you too so really as so many dramatic events happened to him between the ages of of 14 and 18. So by the time he reached 18, he had already met the people who were to form the rest of his life. Now, you two fans will know the story of how the band formed Larry Mullen posting the notice in Mount Temple School saying, drummer seeks musicians to form a band. Let's listen to Bono describe that day. Drummer seeks musicians to form band. How casually our destiny arrives. Quite a few wannabes had responded to Larry Mullen's invitation on the school notice board. And now, classes out for the day, we were all packed in the oven that was Larry's kitchen. How do we fit all the drums, the amps and the apprentice rock stars into such a small room? Guitar and bass might have been squealing for attention with their amplifiers and distortion pedals. But it was the drums that filled both physical and musical space. It was as if no one was in tune but Larry, who appeared quite at home around all this metallic chaos. Well, he was at home. It it was his kitchen. Everything I still love about Larry's playing was present then. The primal power of the tom-toms, the boot in the stomach of the kick drum, the snap and slap of the snare drum as it bounced off windows and walls. This indoor thunder, I thought, 
will bring the whole house down. Soon I noticed another noise, the somewhat high-pitched sound of girls giggling and screaming outside the window. Barry already had a fan club, and over the next hour, he would offer us a lesson in the mystique of the rock star. He turned the garden hose on them. Larry turning the garden hose on his early fans. Uh, that's Bono reading from the audio version of Surrender 40 Songs, One Story. I think he's really transformed the audiobook, hasn't he, Sinead, with the beautiful soundscape behind the, the reading and then how he brings in the music. Yeah, I think a lot of fans will actually possibly buy both. They'll buy both the audiobook and and the hard copy. But certainly I think this will be a really big hit on audio because he has done something very different. I listen to a lot of biographies, you know, actors, rock stars, singers and so on. But in this he really does use a lot of the music. He sings himself. He uses clips of older pieces. He uses new pieces you can hear there. He's melding in all the different sounds. So it really is an, an audio experience. And he reads it very, very well. I mean, what comes across in the book is his own sense of humour and a lot of asides it's very witty and that you can read that in the book but it really really comes across in the audio version as well Yes because I think he says in the book how they would have been accused of too much earnestness at one time and oftentimes I think he's criticised for maybe being a bit po-faced and a bit um, you know uh, maybe worse than up himself but um, but in 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 the book he's he's very aware of his own you know what people say about him and he's quite self-deprecating in it, isn't it? So that tone from that clip there is fairly representative of the book. It's very funny. It's told in a way that you really do feel like he's speaking to you. And yes, he is extremely self-aware and he tells a really good story. He's been telling a lot of them in, in interviews recently as well. So, you know, talking about his dad or talking about the airline food that they had in the house when his brother got the big job in Aer Lingus. And he really knows how to deliver a punchline. So that comes across very well. And as I say, I think people will really enjoy the audio version. That's not to say that there aren't serious moments in the book as well, because it does move from the early days of the band into his activism, which which by necessity, you know, involves more politics, more meetings, more sitting down and fewer rock concerts. But he does balance it very well and really gets that kind of intimate tone across where you feel he's speaking to you. Yes, and it does cause his activism and the fact that they've been together with great success for a long time does cause tensions within the band. I mean, there's a very good passage from their time in Berlin making Octong Baby, where they're all going through various traumas. Yeah, well, the Octon Baby thing was there was creative tensions there as well, where they, you know, they were on top of the world with Joshua Tree, and then they went off to to chop down the Joshua Tree, as they said, and dream it all up again. And and there was a lot of tension there in the production of Octon Baby, but it became then an album that some people will argue is their greatest one. That's the big U two debate: is is Joshua Tree or Octon Baby a greatest album? And and I won't I won't solve that particular problem today. But later on, it's more when he when he goes into political activism and when he does a lot more than lend his name to campaigns when he actually starts you know sitting down at the table in the White House or founding organisations like one he really admits that the people he meets in the kind of anti-poverty world become bandmates nearly as much as, as the other three were and that he's essentially kind of in another band when he's working on all of those campaigns and that does cause a bit of tension with the other three but he eventually obviously does keep the band going as well so the two lives have to coexist so there's a, a the book is slightly different in that middle section when he does become an anti-poverty uh, campaigner and he does a lot of work for AIDS charities and so on because he really does bring you into the boardroom and there's he mentions that there are IMF reports building up by the bedside table because he does decide not just to lend his name or be you know the figurehead that he does actually want to understand what's going on so he goes back to school so I think people might be surprised at the amount of work that went into that you know we see him being photographed maybe with world leaders or at major events but he was behind the scenes doing a lot of work as well so put his money where his mouth was really is what comes across in the book anyway um, Ali Hewson uh, his wife uh, who he met on the same day that that they formed U2 or, or the same week that they formed U2 she, she is a very strong presence in the book 
Yeah, it's extraordinary. I think the stories he asked her out the same week he decided to join you too. He had known her for a good while in the school. They were both in Mount Temple, but they, they started to go out together in the same week he joined you too. I think it was 1976. So a fairly momentous week by anybody's reckoning. But she is an incredibly strong presence throughout the book. And, you know, I think most artists or most people who travel for a living or even who work, you know, very long or difficult hours for a living will know how important it is to have somebody to have your back, basically, especially if you have children, you know, to have a home for you and to have a home to come home to. And she provided him with that. He was able to go and travel the world and, you know, go on tour for weeks or even months at a time. But she was there and she was stability for him. But at the same time, what comes across very strongly in the book is that she was her own person as well. And she wasn't just the missus or just her indoors, that she did very much build her own life as well. And it's an extraordinary portrait of a marriage because they were married very young, particularly by today's standards. They were married in their very early 20s, like 20 and 21, I think. So now they're together 40 years in their early 60s. So they had their first two children relatively young as well. So that's a very interesting story. How do you keep a marriage going when you're, you know, your 30s, your 40s, the strain of having children and so on? So all that is there. It doesn't answer any of the big questions, but it tells you how they did it, basically by giving themselves a lot of space as well to, to go and come back. And at the end of the book, you see a man who's now 62, kind of looking around and saying, you know, who are we now? The children are reared, two of them, as we know, in the entertainment business themselves. So he's back after this 40-year 40 40 year marriage, you know, and they're together again, just the two of them starting out. So as a portrait of a relationship, it's very interesting as well. Um, let's listen to another clip of uh, Bono reading from Surrender. Here he recalls his wedding day and his unusual hairstyle and his wife, Ali, who's also struggling with her own hair. My pinstripe morning suit looked as if it had rented me and I appeared to be wearing a badger on my head. Or was it a toilet brush? It was quite a do, this protean version of the mullet that would mortally wound 1980s fashion. Even more impressive was the top, which was bleached blonde. Nice. Ali and her father parked around the corner from St. Anne's in Rahini, and when she walked into the church, she looked the kind of beautiful you just can't exaggerate, if a little uncomfortable. I appear to have a flower pot on my head, she whispers to me. Ali hadn't figured out how to say no to her hipster hairstylist, who had gotten a little carried away on the horticulture. Anyway, despite her discomfort, she carried the same serenity she always did, the kind I would spend my life trying to inhabit, the kind of beauty that invites more of it from those around her. As I stared a little longer into those veiled eyes, I wondered if Ali was ready to take on the life I'd chosen, even if she was ready to take me for better or worse. I could give myself to the ceremony, to Ali, to the force that brought us together, but could I give her the best of me? when at this stage I hadn't really a clue who I was. Maybe more of a quarter than a half, a bandman more than a duo. With crowds, I was cocky, too comfortable in the big picture. Widescreen, I knew I could love at scale. But could I survive the intimacy of the close-up? As I stood in my wedding suit on the morning of the last day of summer, what would I have said if you'd asked me? I'd have said, I don't know how to do this, but I found someone who can teach me. There's Bono reading from his book, Surrender, and I'm talking to Sinead Crowley about it. Um, Sinead, in the third section of the book, which I think you mentioned earlier, he deals with some headline grabbing moments like his discovery of his half brother and then his relationship with his father. And then you two split with Paul McGuinness. What do we learn here? 
Um, well, he has been, I suppose, yes, we've learned a lot of these lines out of the book, the, sort of the big ticket issues over the last couple of weeks. Um, as he's been speaking about the book, he did find out that a man who was reared as his cousin is actually his half-brother. But the family, you know, they knew, they knew it within the family and kind of worked it out. It's a, a story, I suppose, that wouldn't be unusual in a lot of Irish families, really, that, you know, you discover something later in life and you have to work it out as a family. So there's that there. He also speaks about, he obviously confronted his father when he found out that that was the issue, but then later in life has developed a good relationship with his father again and they used to meet for a pint out in Dalkey and that's drawn very nicely as well. They used to meet out in Finnegan's in Dalkey and that's where his dad actually told him that he was terminally ill. And again, you have this kind of impression of you know, even though extraordinarily famous people, there's normal Irish families in terms of you have to deal with getting older, with your parents getting older and so on. So there's that lovely element of normality to the story as well. And then, yeah, he speaks about the relationships within the band. You know, we know that they split with Paul McGuinness, but he brings us right into the office when he's having the discussion with Paul McGuinness. And, you know, he's talking about the direction the band wants to go with and the work Paul McGuinness had done with downloading of music and that sort of thing. So it's just, it's all these these issues that you might have known or wondered about but he brings you right into the room as um, as they are happening and he actually even brings you into his own house and his own bedroom and talks about you know lying in bed after a gig and what's going through his head and so on so I really think in terms of the fans they're going to learn a lot they're going to learn a lot of maybe things that they had wondered about over the years they're going to feel like they had a bit of a conversation with them hey, There's a great story when there's a knock on their home in Dawkey and uh, surprisingly a world leader is standing outside tell us the Gorbachev story that's right. Well, he says that their house is like a train station on a Sunday and you wouldn't know who would turn up. And he does open the door one Sunday to find Gorbachev clutching a large teddy bear because there's children in the house as well and he feels that he has to bring a gift. But again, there's this kind of strange mix of normality and world affairs where on one hand, they've invited somebody over for Sunday lunch and, and so they come over and they have lunch. But, uh, you know, world affairs then come up at the dinner table. And obviously Ali Hewson had had a role herself as with Chernobyl children and anti-nuclear campaigner and so on. So all of those issues being discussed over the kitchen table. So it, you do get a, an impression of an extraordinary house where anybody could turn up or anything could happen. But a lot, of, a lot of conversations happened as well and that he then had, I suppose, the courage and the confidence to go off and have those conversations on a world stage because there's an intellectual curiosity about the book as well that happens whether it is at the kitchen table or on a world stage and that comes across quite quite strongly. Yes, and do you think that he is, you know, the, he, he does say that he's aware that he's a bit of a, a, a considered a bit of a pain to many people and that he's kind of, uh, you know, doing things above his station and that he's full of himself. Is he aware of that? Is he aware of that? And does he kind of take it in the, the neck or does he argue about what he's achieved? The book is very self-aware and I haven't listened to the whole audiobook yet but even reading it you imagine there is a raised eyebrow at certain places and if, if there's to be criticism he'll nearly preempt it because he, he knows very much what people think but he absolutely defends his own actions as well and what comes across strongly you know why would you I mean, it would be very easy for him not to do any of the activism and just to sort of you know sit at home and count the cash essentially and probably get less criticism as well which is ironic but what comes across very strongly is he feels that fame is a currency and that he wants to use it and that really if you have a bit of power then you should use it and, and channel it in a particular direction. So that really is his reasoning for getting into activism and getting into that kind of political campaigning on that level. There's also a very strong faith, a very strong religious faith through the book. Um, we know kind of the backstories that he was his father was Catholic, his mother was Protestant, they went to different churches and you know he had various encounters with religion and charismatic Christianity and that sort of thing throughout his life but although he doesn't label it there is a very strong religious faith through the book and I think that seems to be behind a lot of the activism that he does as well just this sense of you know wanting to do something positive so yeah he realises what people says but at the same time there is an absolute defence of what he has done and one particular piece I liked um, was when he's with the actor Killian Murphy very late at night in Reynard's nightclub a lot of people the much, the much missed Reynard's 
nightclub in Dublin where all sorts of conversations happen. And Killian Murphy is challenging about his lyrics later on in his career. You know, he's saying songs like One Tree Hill were incredible poetry and now you're writing songs like Vertigo. What does that mean? And Bono does explain what Vertigo means and he speaks to him about his lyrics. But at the same time, you get the impression that he's enjoying being challenged on it and is enjoying the argument. So whereas he does defend a lot of, you know, what he has done, he seems to enjoy being challenged on it too. Um, again, he, he made a new family in U2 and with Ali, but the the ghost of his uh, of the early departure of his mother is very strong in the book. Um, he talks about writing the, the song Iris and then holding back on it until he put it in an album uh, for some time. Yeah, that's fascinating because obviously a lot of the early songs, you know, songs like I Will Follow and so on, off the first album, there's this, you know, image of a boy going out into the world and there is a sense of loss, which I suppose can be traced back with the knowledge that we have now that it was a boy who was still, you know, reeling from the grief from from the loss of his mother. But even as late as the last couple of albums, he was writing songs like Iris and that he says this was the the famous album that was dropped on iTunes, Songs of Innocence. Um, He said just before it was about to be dropped, he actually contemplated just removing the song altogether given that it was a digital release could he do that just because he felt the grief was so raw and that he was still yes. you know singing about the subject that was so close to him he didn't eventually but did actually find out that it was being released 40 years after he last spoke to her so okay let's listen to that now Iris there from Songs of Its Experience from U2 2014 album. And Sinead Crowley is with me who has been reading Bono's Surrender. So Sinead, would you recommend it? It is an extraordinary autobiography. It really does bring you right into the heart and soul of the author. All the questions you ever wanted to ask, I think there probably you'll find answers in there. And as I was saying, the audiobook as well, highly recommended. It is a piece of performance, really different as audiobooks go. It's about 20 hours, I think, but it'll fly by given given how it is written and how it is presented. And the book itself is, is based on 40 songs. So it's actually a book that you can dip in and dip out of. You mightn't even necessarily read it from beginning to end. And it's structured like that. So, yeah. I think it's going to be in a lot of stockings this Christmas. My thanks to Sinead Crowley. Surrender, Force, 40 Songs, One Story by Bono is published by Penguin and you can catch Sinead's full interview with Bono on rte.ie forward slash culture. Author Maggie O'Farrell proved that she can breathe life into characters who have been lost to history in her novel Hamnet, the story of William Shakespeare's son who died from the Black Death when he was only 11, but went on to inspire the playwright to name his masterwork Hamlet in his honour. Well, Maggie is back, digging into history again, and this time bringing to life a young woman who was only known for her portrait, which in turn inspired Robert Browning to write the poem My Last Duchess. The Marriage Portrait is a novel set in Renaissance Italy, which simmers with court intrigue, where a young bride, Lucrezia de' Medici, lives in fear that her new husband, Alfonso d'Este, Duke of Ferreira, is going to murder her. I'm delighted to be joined in studio by Maggie O'Farrell. Maggie, it sounds there like I've given away loads of spoilers, but <laughs> we know from chapter one, really, that this young woman is living in fear of her life. That's right, yeah, that's how the book opens. He takes her on a visit to a remote country villa and as she arrives she realises that he might have a sinister purpose in bringing her there, that he wants to kill her. So tell us about Lucrezia. Where did you, was it the portrait attracted you to her or was it the poem? Well it was the poem initially. I was rereading Robert Browning's poems and it was just before lockdown began. It was February 2020 and I was just wondering to myself one day idly whether or not the most famous of his poems, My Last Duchess, is based on real events because he did write several poems, uh, several monologues about, about real um, people, historical people. So I just started looking it up and within a few minutes I had her name, Lucrezia de' Medici, 
And then a minute or two later, this portrait started downloading on my tiny phone screen and I could see this jewelled headdress and these rather anxious-looking brown eyes. And as soon as I saw the whole thing, as soon as I had her face in front of me, I just knew it was a really strange thing that's never happened before. I just knew that I was looking at the subject of my next novel. That, you know, I feel that she's been behind the curtain in Robert Browning's poem for so long that it was time to pull back that curtain and say to her, you know, what story might you have told if you were able to tell it? Now, her surname is de Medici, so mm. that means she is from the powerful Medici family yeah. in Florence in, in the Renaissance. And then she is making this marriage to this man, Alfonso. So mm-hmm. it's all, marriage is an important proposition in those days. What is the power or what are the two families looking for in this union? Well, I think, you know, her father was Cosimo de' Medici, who was the Grand Duke of Tuscany, and her mother was Eleonora di Toledo. And until uh, until Cosimo became the Grand Duke, the Medicis were in danger of dying out. But he and his incredible wife, uh, Eleonora, who was a very capable, intelligent woman, uh, basically resurrected the whole dynasty, and he made... Uh, Florence a very prosperous and stable region and Eleonora helped him and she also produced 12 children. Her nickname in Florence was La Fecundissima. (laughs) Um, And so their sons were destined to become, they were brought up to be rulers and soldiers and the daughters were intended to make politically advantageous marriages. I mean, they were essentially political mergers, these marriages. Uh, so they they were they betrothed Lucrezia to the ruler of Ferrara, Alfonso, in order to create a union between these two regions, uh, which had a shared border. But they also, I think, wanted um, you know, Lucrezia to bear heirs for a dynasty that was half Medici and half Deste. Now, the way the book is formed, because as I said, she's there with her husband in the opening chapter, mm. but then alternate chapters, we go back into her life. And that life as a very young child growing up into, well, she doesn't, does she even get to teenagehood just about before yeah. she gets married off to Alfonso? Mm-hmm. What was her life there? Because Cosimo de Medici was not always very loved, so he had to build a protection for his family. Yeah, I mean, basically, I think, you know, it's no coincidence, I think, that during lockdown, I, I wrote a book which is about a child or a girl uh, who basically had, didn't have a lot of choice in life. Uh, so she and all her siblings were, I mean, actually, quite unusually, Cosimo and Eleonora did choose to educate their daughters alongside their sons. So the daughters and uh, had the best education that money could buy. So they had the most extraordinary tutors and uh, teachers in music and art and classics. And um, But essentially, it was too dangerous for them to leave the, the walls of the palazzo. There were so many assassination attempts made on Cosimo's life that he never left his palazzo without wearing chainmail underneath his clothes, which, you know, if anyone has ever been to Italy in July and August can imagine how horribly uncomfortable that was. So so the children essentially lived on one floor, quite high floor up um, in this palazzo. And, you know, to take exercise, they just walked along the battlements. So in a sense, Lucrezia grew up in lockdown, permanent lockdown. And also the people might have been uncomfortable because of the chainmail, but also the awful <laughs> smell that was coming from his menagerie of animals that Cosimo yeah. kept in the in the basement. And this is something you researched and found out that he yeah. kept. So Cosimo, I think like any, uh, you know, quite self-respecting ruler in the 16th century had, it was, a, it was a sort of a status symbol, I think. You know, people these days might have a BMW or a Ferrari, but in those days, if you were a, a rich man, you decided to keep a collection of exotic animals in your house. Henry VIII had one in the Tower of London uh, and Cosimo kept exotic animals in the basement of the palazzo. He had lions and gorillas, um, possibly a tiger, cheetahs um, and I think he used to pit them against each other which is particularly unpleasant but also to kind of show off to, to visitors. Now, the other um, strong male character is obviously the man she is given in marriage to, Mm. Alfonso, and she is not his first choice. And from the the Robert Browning poem is told from his point of view. Mm -hmm. So is uh, Alfonso the villain of the piece or do you give us a more nuanced point of view? I think definitely at the beginning, you're kind of going, God, he's a lovely fella. I don't know why she thinks he might kill her. (laughs) Well, I think when I started the book, I thought I wanted to be quite even-handed with Alfonso because... The, you know, there were rumours at the time when uh, Lucrezia died. So Lucrezia began her marriage with him when she was 15 and by 16 she was dead. And there are there were rumours at the time that he had had her poisoned 
Um, but some historians have suggested that actually, no, she died of natural causes. Um, and, and yes, she wasn't his first choice. Uh, Alfonso was initially uh, betrothed to her elder sister, Maria, but Maria sadly died at the age of 17. So Lucrezia was uh, ushered in as a kind of stand-in bride. Um, and so I did think at the beginning, I thought, well, maybe I need to be even-handed. I don't want to, you know, uh, condemn a man who hasn't been tried for this uh, crime. But then as I was researching it, I discovered something about Alfonso that he was quite proud of people knowing. It's on his historical record. And that is that when he discovered his sister was having an affair with the head of the guardsman at his castello, he sentenced this man to be strangled to death and he forced his sister to watch. And when I discovered that, I mean, I have a really strong memory of closing the cover of the book where I read that. And as I shut the cover, I remember thinking, right, Alfonso, I'm coming for you. OK, all bets are off, Alfonso. <laughs> are off. Yeah, if, if you could do is, that, yeah. you could do anything. Well, that's, I mean, it's, it's an act of such viciousness mm. and... Now, he's under an awful lot of pressure. That's true. Yes, he has a mother who is Protestant mm-hmm. and then there is the pressure on him to... Cons- to, to produce an heir. To, to produce yeah. an heir. And there might be problems in that department. Yes, that's certainly true. I mean, history suggests there were problems in that department for him. But so, so yes, so his mother had been exiled by the Pope. She'd been ordered to leave Ferrara um, for practising Protestantism and she was ordered back to France. And she took one of Alfonso's sisters with her against his wishes... And he'd also only been duke for about a year, so he, in order to, he needed to prove to his province, to his his court, and his possible watching enemies that he was more than up to the job, that he was a capable ruler, and he was a ruthless ruler. And he also, like you say, needed to produce an heir. Otherwise, it's possible that his duchy could have fallen into the hands of the French. You know, if his sister in France had had a child, that child would have a claim on the duchy. So, yes, he was under a lot of pressure, but. You know, I don't think there's ever any so much pressure that, you know, induces you to... I know, I know, I, I didn't see it as, a, as an excuse no, for no, any action that he may have no. thought about. So, uh, Maggie O'Farrell is at home in lockdown, mm-hmm. thinking about the Renaissance. How did you go about researching it? Because you had a poem and a portrait and obviously the whole Medici history, but you didn't have an awful lot about Lucrezia. There isn't much written about Lucrezia at all. I mean, we know when she was born and we know when she married and when she died but we don't know what she died of you know there's no certain there's no certainty about that and obviously like you say there's an awful lot written about the Medici's they're they're very famous um her sister Isabella that there there's a biography of her and there are several biographies of the Medici's so there are things that you can find out her parents also Cosimo and Eleonora um I think unusually for their time and class really adored each other I mean their marriage was partially arranged but they were deeply in love and when they were apart they wrote a lot of letters to each other so those letters are an amazing historical record of domestic life actually uh, with the Medici's there's an awful lot about who's grown out of who's smock somebody needs winter shoes I mean anything you know these things are so familiar to anyone who's a parent Um, but actually yes there are a lot of gaps in Lucrezia's story certainly there isn't much known about her hers is a history written in white but, you know, I think that would be frustrating for a historian or a biographer. But actually for a novelist, those gaps are a bit of an opportunity. You can step into it and, and fill it with whatever narrative you yourself want to tell. And did you find it a more interesting canvas? Not interesting because obviously Hamlet is such an interesting character, but mm. colour-wise and, you know, the Renaissance and the idea of of Italy and the heat and yeah. the menagerie, did you find it um, more stimulating in some ways or different? stimulating than Hamnet. Yeah, very different. I mean, it's funny, you know, even though Hamnet and Lucrezia lived possibly about 30 years apart, all the things I'd learned for Hamnet, you know, about that it was, were actually sort of false friends in a way, you know, because the life of an 11-year-old boy in rural Warwickshire, even though it's in the same century, is so different from the privileged yet you know, incredibly restricted life of a, of a principessa in the 16th century Florence. And of course, you know, I mean, I suppose, you know, during lockdown, it was an amazing uh, escape for me to be able to go into this uh, escape hatch, in a sense, to, to you know, Renaissance Florence. That, that, that there are worse places to spend your time imaginatively. And also the, you know, that time in history is so present in paintings and architecture and sculpture of the time. You know, we all have a sense, even if we haven't been to Florence, we all have a sense of what the Renaissance might have looked like or rooms looked like or people looked like or clothes or hair or whatever. So it is something that's very visually vivid and present in our lives today. And did you go there then after lockdown for a bit of a recce? 
I did. I mean, you know, obviously I, nobody was going anywhere in 2020, 2021. I think, you know, I had to write the book almost counterintuitively because obviously if the world had been working normally, I would have gone quite quickly. And in a sense, I was lucky. I used to live near Florence for a while, so I knew Florence quite well. And I'd been to the Palazzo Vecchio where Lucrezia spent her childhood. Um, but I'd never actually set foot in Ferrara. So I was quite nervous because I have a rule never that I will never write about where, where I haven't been. So I had to do it the other way around. You know, as soon as travel restrictions lifted last year in September, I went to Italy quite quickly. And, and Ferrara is in North Italy. Yeah, it's about Bologna. Yeah, it's in um, Emilia Romana. It's about two hours north of Florence. Um, it's really beautiful. And I don't think it's very touristy at all. You know, I think if it was a city that was in Tuscany, it would be overrun with tourists, but actually it isn't. So it's beautiful place so definitely go if you can as long as you don't find an Alfonso <laughs> <laughs> yes definitely not don't marry in haste in Ferrara and and you visited the grave of Lucrezia I did yeah so that was one of the things I did I went to all the locations in the different Castellos and Palazzo and I really wanted to go and see her grave so she's in the family the Este family tomb in a monastery in the south of Ferrara city and I I did go there and I knocked on the door and a very tiny nun answered and I explained that I wanted to see her tomb. And she kept saying, you mean Lucrezia Borgia? You want to see Lucrezia Borgia's grave? Because Lucrezia was a very famous Renaissance woman. She's actually Alfonso's grandmother. And I kept saying, no, 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 Lucrezia de Medici. And eventually they, they let me in. And then they said to me, um, no one has ever asked, ever, to see the grave of Lucrezia de Medici. Which just broke my heart, absolutely broke my heart. You know, this poor 16-year-old girl who died far away from her family and... Yet she seems forgotten about. Um, after Hamlet, uh, you you now have done another historical novel. Is mm. this? Do you think that Hamlet changed your way of writing and your the things you're interested in? I mean, actually, only in the sense that I think all books change you in a way. You know, you, every book you write has a very steep learning curve, um, and you can put into practice things that you want to try for the first time. Uh, I think, I don't know if I, I think it, it's given me the confidence, I think, in a way to address things that are in history, I suppose. Um, but I wouldn't, I'm not sure I deserve the, uh, <laughs> the the name of historical novelist. You know, there are novelists who've devoted their whole lives to writing about history. And, you know, in a way, I think, you know, you have to choose. It's not really me who chooses the books. The books choose me, in a sense. It's always, I think you always have to write the book that that is calling your name the loudest. Now, there's definitely themes within the relationship between Alfonso and uh, Lucrezia about, I suppose, coercive control. Is is that, are they the themes that you think may be, may impact on people reading the novel today? Possibly. I mean, actually, I wasn't thinking, you know, I I think when you're writing about the past, you have to be very careful not to impose modern sensibilities on these people. And obviously, yes, she was married at 15 and, you know, I kept trying to remind myself that 15 then was probably different from 15 now. I mean, life expectancy was probably between 40 and 45, of, you know, if you were going to die of natural causes. Um, but at the same time, yes, she was 15. I mean, she's a child and he was 27. So it, it's a tricky one. But I think, you know, also, I think always at the forefront of my mind was also the idea that however much I would wish it otherwise... 15-year-old girls and younger are still, you know, this still happens in places in the world and different cultures in the world. And so you never have to forget that as well. Meg Ufarl, thank you so much. The Marriage Portrait is out now and it's published by Hatchet. Also, The Marriage Portrait is shortlisted for the Eason Novel of the Year at the Unpost Irish Book Awards and voting is now open. irishbookawards.ie to get your vote in. Maggie O'Farrell, thank you very much. Thank you for having me.